Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 4th, 2022, a Friday, a dark day, given what's happening in the Ukraine. Uh, I had a little piece myself in Literary Hub today, uh, Go Fuck Yourself on Putin's Propaganda and the Week in the Ukrainian Resistance. I have to admit that the piece um, was reliant on an interview I did earlier this week with two academics at the Central University in Vienna, Maciej Kizalowski and Inna Melnikovska, who's a Ukrainian. Many of you will be familiar with the Central um European University. It was based in Budapest. Now it's in, uh, now for various reasons, which we'll get into, it's in Hungary. We've used a lot of their academics in the past. It's a wonderful institution. I talked um, a few weeks ago to Dorit Giva on uh, Orban and and nationalism in Hungary. Um, The mission of the Central European University is uh, dedicated to socially and morally responsible intellectual inquiry. A lot of universities say that. Most don't live up to it. My sense is that the Central University has indeed uh, lived up to it. One of the reasons, I think, is because it's financed by a man called George Soros. He gave Central European University, when he founded it in Budapest in 1991, a $800 million endowment, which I think it's used quite wisely in terms of becoming uh, this place for morally responsible intellectual inquiry. It reflects, I think, Soros in many ways. And we're talking about Soros today. Uh, My guest is someone who's been on the show before, Peter Osnos. He is the editor of a new book just come out by Harvard, uh, uh, published by Harvard Business Review, called George Soros, A Life in Fall. And I'm thrilled that Peter is joining us from his home in New York City. Peter, um, the subtitle of George Soros, A Life in Fall, is survivor, billionaire, speculator, philanthropist, philosopher, political activist, nemesis of the far right, global citizen. Is all, are all those things somehow captured in his commitment to the Central University? Is it an institution that reflects, above all else, his values? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Andrew, Central European University is completely, 100% a reflection of Soros's way of doing things in the world. There was no Central European University without George Soros. He thought it up with some advisors and created it. I just think that the essence of what is happening right now in the Ukraine and Russia and in Europe is a very distinct reflection of the broader context of Soros's life and work. Why do I mean that? In some ways, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a reflection of failure because it was Soros's very distinct um, wish, urge, and uh, policy after the dissolution of the Soviet Union to make Russia part of the world, to have its open society values. He put a great deal of money 
into things like, for example, scientists who were not being paid in the immediate aftermath of the dissolution, he was paying every one of them 300 bucks a pop. And then gradually, as we all now know only too well, the Russia that emerged uh, from the Soviet Union gradually turned into what it is today. On the other hand, it's a success. Why? Because Poland and Romania and Ukraine and Moldova, all of these are countries that in the aftermath of this, the Cold War era have moved into a place where what they're trying to do is protect open values, open society. I mean, ironically, even the autocratic government in Hungary is supporting the sanctions. The same government that drove CEU out of, uh, out of Budapest is now joining with the rest of the European countries that have sanctioned uh, Russia. So what you have here is the balance between what worked which is whether more or less in the, all the usual complexities, open society or democracy or an evolution of uh, civil society in Europe and the failure in Russia. And that would reflect the kind of breadth of uh, George's uh, experience. You know, when the CEU was driven out of uh, Budapest and had to go to Vienna, everybody was coming to George and saying, George, George, George. We need more money, need more money. And George said, look, I've given you a great deal of money. Is it really the case that CEU is not capable of raising any money on its own? And the answer is, it's really not. Because once you have George Soros as your founder, your, your, in effect, your spiritual force, it's very hard for anybody else to see why they should give it money. So you have in that one saga, a whole lot of strands. Soros's extraordinary philanthropic instincts, his commitment to creating an open society with civic values, and how hard it is to do that. And that, I think, is really the essence. The book, which contains eight essays by really an extraordinary group of writers, who each of whom know much more about one element of George's life than any of the others. Right. And I, I want to get to each of the pieces. Um, we're going to get to them. It's a marvelous book, uh, Peter, that you've put together. One of uh, the essays is by Michael Ignatiev, um, who was the first, I think, dean or rector at the Central University. Um, it's well, the, he's actually far from the first. He's just the fourth or fifth, but doesn't okay, matter. Well, when I, I visited him, uh, I did an interview with him for my How to Fix Democracy movie few years ago and he showed, we went to Budapest with a film crew and he was very hospitable. He showed me the Central University and the two rooms at the Budapest campus that really stuck out for me because they seemed to capture Osnos's intellectual journey and his values. Oh, not Osnos, that's me. Well, is that <laughs> you, you mean your thinking or, uh, or, 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 or Soros's thinking? You know what I say about one thing, Andrew, let me interrupt. So I am O-S-N-O-S, -O -S, and he is S-O, 
ROS. And I say the difference between us is one letter and about $40 billion. Right. Well, let's go back to the values, not of, of you, but of uh, George Soros. There were two rooms there that really stuck out, the Gellner Room and the Popper Room. Um, he was very influenced by open society and its enemies, Popper's great work, 1945, wasn't he? Yes. Well, it was one of the things he studied when he was at the LSE, and it had a, a profound influence on him, the open society concept. But he's, of course, adapted it to his own uh, approach to things, which is, as you know, distinctive which is to say what's remarkable about George is exactly what's on the cover of that book. That when it comes to finance, when it comes to philanthropy, when it comes to politics, each and every one of these things is enough for one lifetime. And what was fascinating to us, and I, if you'd like I can explain why we did the book the way we did, was the degree to which you had to embrace so many things in order to explain this one human being. When uh, that, well, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about your relationship, Peter. When did you first meet Soros? I met George a long time ago in connection with human rights. I was on the board of Human Rights Watch. He was one of the people who was most interested in human rights. And so I started, uh, I knew him sort of at that, in that way. But then in 1998, it's actually quite a good story, in 1998, when George was writing a book called The Crisis of Global Capitalism, and it was gonna be published by Random House, and they said it would be published in six months. Six months? It's gonna take six months? The crisis is happening now. I had just started Public Affairs, where one of the things we knew how to do was books quickly. And he called me and he said, uh, can you do this Crisis of Global Capitalism? I'll give you the book, it's ready. I said, well, how soon do you need it, George? About a week from Monday. And the reason was that the IMF World Bank meeting was taking place in Washington, and he wanted his book to be reflected in the discussions. That's classic George. So, in fact, my little staff and I came up with a way of giving everybody at the open at the World Bank and the IMF one, the opening summary chapter of the book put on everybody's chair. And then I said, George, the rest of the book will be ready in six weeks, which it was. And we sold it in 35 foreign countries. Uh, it was a bestseller in the United States. So I say, when you want to work with George, say yes, cope later. And that's what we did. And from then on, it was his publisher. And if you're somebody's publisher, if you're George Soros' publisher over nearly a quarter of a century now, uh, you have to be developing a relationship that, that, that works. And, and we did. Uh, George had confidence that we would you know, be able to produce his books in a timely way. Uh, the irony of crisis of global capitalism is that after it came out, he decided he'd been wrong, that it really wasn't the ultimate crisis. So he went back and revised the book. So I've learned how to, you know, over a very now long period of time, learned how to understand work and admire George as both his publisher and again, as I have with so many other authors I've worked with, just figure out the nature of a relationship between the author and, and how I handle the process. So that really is it. I mean, we've been together now on these various adventures for a long time.
traveled how, with um, I mean, the, the, the subtitle of, of the book, of course, is Survivor, Billionaire, Speculator, Philanthropist, Philosopher, political, political Activist, Nemesis of the Far-Right, Global Citizen. It doesn't describe Soros himself. Is he um, a man of nerves, of nervous, nervelessness? Of course, he's very famous for supposedly breaking the Bank of England, which required a man of balls to do. Is he... Is he ballsy as a person would you know if you met him that here was a man who actually took on the bank of england and won well you would if you spend as much time thinking about it as <laughs> as i have the answer to your question andrew and I, I you know in order to sort of get as much material into one space george in in the 1944 was a boy of about 14. the nazis came into Budapest and as you doubtless know, hundreds of thousands of Jews were eventually annihilated, but not George or his father or his brother or his mother. Why? Largely because his father was an extraordinarily adept man at navigating the impossible. And he found a way to save George save his mother, save his brother. And when George got to London after the war and was trying to decide how to spend the rest of his life, his father's willingness, ability, and skill at taking risk is what I think George would tell you guided his strategies in a lot of other ways. He was reasonable, rational, but also in his way fearless. He will tell you, and I think Sebastian Malaby, who's a really remarkably good writer on finance, explains, George just knew when to hold them and when to fold them, not because he had been trained as an accountant, not because he'd been trained as a banker, but because somewhere in his overall makeup was this understanding of, of markets, when to buy, when to sell. It's instinctive. It's and in that's what makes it extraordinary. We are and talking it with... From, um, it comes from his father's, he says, it comes from what he learned from his father about risk-taking. And you can ask him in every way you know how whether that is the case, and he'll always answer it that way. We're talking to uh, Peter Osnos, uh, not George Soros, but similar name. George Soros, A Life in Full. Peter's the editor. It's a wonderful book, uh, Peter. Congratulations. We're going to take you. a short break. And afterwards, I want to talk about each of the sections briefly. Uh, his life as an investor, young man, um, man of the world. So we're going to be back in about uh, 60 seconds with uh, Peter Osnos, the editor of George Soros, A Life in Full. Hold on, everyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using 
Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are here. We are live with Peter Osnos, the editor of George Soros, A Life in Fall, a wonderful book that uh, breaks Soros up into a number of different parts. The first uh, part of the book, Peter, uh, you mentioned George as a, as a boy um, growing up in Hungary. The first part of the book uh, is by Eva Hoffman, the author of Lost in Translation. Um, and it deals with his origins. Talk to me briefly about the Hoffman piece in the book. Eva, who herself comes from that part of the world and was born immediately after the Holocaust and literally was the only one of the authors that we um, invited to, to the book who didn't know George or who George didn't know. And he was a little skeptical to begin with. After all, he said, she's Polish, I'm Hungarian. But because of her innate understanding of what it means to have been a child in that period, I think she's really brilliantly, in fact, uniquely conveyed how it was that George came from an upper middle class Jewish home. Life was good until it was awful. And what the implications of that are it's one of the things that Ava writes about often, which is, <clears throat> you have to forgive me. I think I explained to you, Andrew, I'm just back from Petra where I marched up town. Yeah, and I, I dragged you onto the show, Peter. So I invited. And so it's not up to my 100% standards, you know, I stand up. Anyway, I think she, she very much reflects her own background in explaining how it is that George is a young man, a Jewish teenager, sort of outsmarted with his father's help, the Nazis, and gave himself the lift that was necessary for everything that followed. Second part, you've already mentioned uh, Sebastian Malaby. Uh, he actually was on the show recently talking about um, his new book, The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future. Um, does Sebastian focus then on George Soros as a risk taker, as a, as a genius, as a master of the international financial system? What does he talk about when he describes 
uh, Soros as the financier? I, the question that I posed to Sebastian, and if he's been on your show, you know how good he is. The question that I posed to him was, did George become a billionaire because of strategy or instinct? Two different things. And yes, there was a strategy, but it was mainly instinct. He was really perhaps the first of the hedge fund pioneers in figuring out how to measure risk, how to understand the direction markets were going. And as I said, this is not somebody for whom there were formulas. This was instinctive. This is why when George wrote his first book, which is called The Alchemy of Finance, really it was, his, it was almost impenetrable in its complexity because George was working through all these ideas. And over time, and certainly in the 20 plus years I've worked with him, those ideas have become clearer and clearer. Basically, he believes that markets are gonna go up and down, and the trick is to know the factors that make it happen that way first. So he's a financier by instinct. He's a speculator, which he calls himself, which is how it came that he could take on the British pound and bring it down, because he just knew it was the moment. Peter, um, you've been on the show before. You're a veteran, a legend within the publishing industry. I'm struck by the fact um, you were Soros's or you are Soros's publisher. You don't include writer. He's a survivor, a billionaire, a speculator, philanthropist, philosopher, political activist, nemesis of the far right, global citizen. Why didn't you also include writer? Well, he is a writer. He's an author, not a writer. Uh, and oh, it's a good question, but he it's couldn't fit it in, his, could you? There's his, too many things. His work as a writer is an outgrowth of all those other factors. In other words, he didn't get up in the morning and say, Today I am a writer. He gets up in the morning and says, Today I'm a survivor of financiers. And writing is a, a, a means of expression, it's a means of, of putting into words all of those aspects of his character that the book is about. So I don't think of himself, he doesn't think of himself as primarily a writer. He'd like me, one of my favorite parts about the whole thing is that the elusive title that George wanted was philosopher. And for a long time, nobody would give him that title because they didn't recognize the degree to which his financial approach to the world of finance and speculation was based on a core philosophy, which he calls reflexivity, which is the action-reaction cycle in markets. So I would say as a writer, it's a an outgrowth. Uh, he's also a tennis player. He's also a father. He's is, also he any, a, is he any good at tennis? Does he still play? How old is he now? He's over 90. 91. Does he still play tennis? Yes. I, I You know the way some, when people get... Uh, old and old and old and old. Certain things become more important as a manifestation of their ability to continue to, to, to be active. And in George's case, two things, I think three things that inspire him, the world in which he is so completely engaged on a daily basis, his marriage to Tomiko, who is his old 
third wife um, and a remarkable person for understanding how to keep George doing the things he most wants to do. And tennis, plays tennis every day he can. That's lovely. Um, um, uh, Peter, um, most of our listeners will probably be most familiar with Soros as what you call the nemesis of the far right. Um, you have a chapter on uh, Soros as uh, a philanthropist by uh, Darren Walker. Do you think that as an, that, that, that it's his philanthropy that has made his generosity in terms of financing progressive movements? Is that why he is this nemesis of the right? Well, that's really a, a double barrel issue. What Darren Walker says, and I'm, in my view, again, the, the, you know, you've already been very complimentary about the book, but it is true that each one of these essays brings an insight to George's character that is, is distinctive. What, what Darren basically says is philanthropy, traditional philanthropy of, its, of the kind that, that most of us are familiar with, um, involves you know, research, or buildings, or you know, all kinds of tangibles. George's philanthropy is built on values. And that's what Darren said. Uh, if you think about Rockefeller or Ford or even Gates, there's a kind of concreteness to their efforts to change the world. In George's case, it's all about values. I want to bring values. The first half of the question is, what is his philanthropy? It's about values. The second half of the question is, why does he inspire this? It's a story which, frankly, is based on certain kind of illusions. Uh, the illusion that somehow George is the mastermind of the left, which is nonsense. I can tell you nonsense. And it is nonsense not because he doesn't believe in things. It's because the idea that he sort of sits at a great big keyboard and makes things happen, it's just not the case. Uh, George gives money where he thinks it will make a difference. He has his political uh, pack, which he gives money to. But he is nothing like the huge network on the right, the Koch brothers, and, and all the sort of many ways in which the right has fused into a network. That's not George. One of the things George is not is a networker. I mean, he is a networker in terms of the people he knows and so forth and so on, but he doesn't follow anybody else's lead. Although you have an essay on networks by Orville Schell in the book, the, the Chinese yes. column. But he's talking about George's networks of intellectuals, and the various strands of the things he's interested in. He doesn't see it as when we talk about network in the way the Koch brothers have a network of all these foundations that support stuff. And I mean, one of the things we've learned in the last, particularly in the last 25 years, 20 years, maybe less, is what the right in America, the conservative right, the far right in America has figured out how to do is create a tapestry a tapestry of, 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 of organizations, of beliefs, of interests, and calculations much more effectively than the left in America. So the, the, the notion of equating George with the right-wing network of organizations and foundations is, is an, it's just not right. George is too much of an individualist. Uh, 
um, <laughs> two, two comments. One is that George will say when they attack him relentlessly, and they do. I mean, I, I found a quote the other day from a state senator in Arizona last week after the invasion who said that Zelensky was a globalist and a captive of the Soros-Clinton universe. That's what she said, state senator in Arizona. The nonsense. George will say most of the stuff just it's, it's just happening around him. It doesn't really affect him. He's old and he's rich. He says, what can they do to me? Except when they put a bomb in his mailboxes, they did. But basically, I think his view is that I do what I do. And the broader perspective um, is there and I can't change it. Uh, the one place where that is not true is, is Hungary. Hungary is his homeland. And yeah, you have an uh, my How to Fix Democracy uh, movie. I also interviewed Leon Botstein, who is a remarkable figure, as some ways as remarkable as George Soros. He's the um, he's a university dean. He's a conductor, a, mu a musical conductor. He's a writer. Um, and you have uh, uh, the the final section in the book is the challenge by, by Leon on 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 Soros. I think Leon is also the chairman of Central University. The challenge and legacy of being a Jew from Hungary. What does that mean, do you think? Is there something specific about being a Hungarian Jew, which is different from being well, that, a Polish Jew or a Czech yeah. Jew or an American Jew? That It's a 15 or 1,000 word essay, which makes that point. And I, rather than try to summarize it crudely, um, he analyzes the notion of what it means to be a Hungarian Jew. I don't think people who are not Jewish, certainly people who are not Jewish of the sort of Central Europe, uh, Russian uh, background, can fully appreciate the sort of nuances of what it means. I mean, what we're seeing that right now, for example, is that Putin says he's denazifying, denazifying Ukraine, whose president is a Jewish son of Holocaust survivors. The complexity of being a Jew in Central and Eastern Europe is vast. And Hungary is one strand of that. The Hungarian middle class, upper middle class Jews were very much part of the culture and very much integrated and not assimilated because that's not really possible. But the fact that Hungary has turned or Orban has turned on George is personal in the way that the far right in America can never really be to him. So I think you have to distinguish between what's personal and what is perceived as political. When Orban put George's face on the ground where you had to walk on it in order to get into the bus. I think that hurt. And there's not much he can do about it. I think the Central European University story uh, is a kind of particularly difficult because of what Central European University meant to Hungary, um, which is a different kind of a, of a reality than having Tucker Carlson attack you. 
All right. So uh, that, you know, did a one-hour documentary on George just two weeks ago, and one of my favorite essays, if not actually the favorite one, um, Peter, in the book is by Ivan Krastev. He's also was. Uh, I was in Vienna. We did a. We filmed a conversation with him in his home in Vienna, and he spoke about Vienna as the heart of Europe and of civilization. He has an essay on in the book on. Uh, Soros's Eastern European mind. Krestev is from Bulgaria. I don't think he's Jewish. Is he, Krestev? I never asked him. I doubt it. I, I don't think he's he's from Sofia in, in Bulgaria. He's also no, a New York Times columnist. He, he's a wonderfully uh, articulate thinker. He had a piece out uh, last week called uh, In the Times. We are all living in Vladimir Putin's world now. Yes, uh, Soros is a financier. Yes, he's a Hungarian Jew. But above all else, uh, Krastev is right. He has an East European mind, doesn't he, Peter? Yeah, I mean... Which is unique, which is very hard to describe to anyone who hasn't spent any time in Eastern Europe. Well, you know, you asked me at the outset what our relationship is. And I've, I've always thought that one element of our relationship is that my background and his uh, as coming out of Eastern Central Europe as Jews is very similar. Um, and I think since you talked to me about my memoir, you would know that. It, the first part of that book describes exactly what happened to my family. Right. And, and your book is called An Especially Good View, Watching History Happen Now. Right. Thank you. And the first part of the book tells the story of how my family uh, my father, mother, and brother were all driven out of their homes, very much the way people are being forced out of their homes in Ukraine now, um, only because they were Jews. And they made it eventually to the United States through India, where I was born. I understand George's relationship to the past. I understand George's relationship as a person who lived through the worst of the Holocaust, even more than I, because I wasn't born there, I was born in India. But the fact of the matter is, it's only one lifetime, mine and his, he's older than I am, of course, since the Holocaust. And we need to remember that. George remembers it. He remembers the fact that even though he is not a Jew you know, for whom synagogue is the issue or religion. He was shaped by this essence of his background and who he is, the fact that he's a Jew. And I think that's the point of, of, of Leon's. What does it mean now as George is 91 and confronts the inevitable sometime? to have been what he was, a Jew from Hungary? And what's the history of being a Jew from Hungary? And how does that all shape him? And I think that's why the essays are, each of the essays, I agree with you completely, that each of the essays, Krashev, for example, is writing from his own perspective, which is a post-Cold War um, analyst. He was watching the arc of hope in the post-Cold War period, which, as we now know, 
has ended in so many different ways in disappointment. Being a Jew is not something you can get rid of. Uh, if you come from the background that George does. Each of these elements in the book are, are, are part of the composite of this remarkably multifaceted man. Uh, one of the reasons we had to do the book this way is that no one person could really do a good job in a biography. People have tried and they were very kind of frustrated in the end, the books were never gonna be as good as they want, were supposed to be because George is this too much. There's too I, much I mean, really he's such a, Peter, thinking about it, he's such a remarkable man on so many levels. There's something fictional about him. Isn't his life ultimately going to be best captured by a novelist? Find one. <laughs> I would like to believe that we captured his life in this book. But yes, I think, you know, I don't think, as I said, the reason we did the book the way we did you know, the origin was it was his 90th birthday, it was locked down, there was going to be no party. George and I were on the Zoom together. And I, I said, George, you can't have a party, but why Does don't we know how to do Zoom, George? Oh, it's quite good. He's actually better on Zoom than he is in other ways because of the nature of the audio. George's age related issues have to do mostly with hearing and a little bit with eyesight. So he, he uses the iPad for reading or large font. And uh, on Zoom, uh, in the nature of the way the technology works for him, it's, it's actually better than perhaps it would be in other ways. Um, he, you know, you know, other people as old as George would have given up. <laughs> but, yeah, he hasn't given up. up. Right? He and, and, and you haven't given up either, Peter. I mean, well, it's a moment of I mean, here I am on this thing, you know. Yeah, I mean, you, I dragged you off your deathbed, didn't I? Well, I wouldn't quite call it my deathbed, but I'll tell you this, it was worth it. Petra was remarkable. Marching up and down the old thousands of year old stones and sand was great. But traveling back and forth, it's not COVID. So you were in where? Were you Jordan? Oh, sorry? You were in Jordan? Yeah. Lovely. Well, Peter, Peter Osnos, uh, again, congratulations. It's a wonderful achievement what you've done with this book, George Soros, A Life in Full, marvelous essays, marvelously put together with your, your, your ability, your understanding of the publishing industry and of books. It's a tremendous achievement. Finally, uh, Peter, we're doing this with all our guests these days, but it's particularly appropriate given we're talking about George Soros. Uh, Peter Osnos, the author of George Soros, uh, A Life in Full. Peter, uh, who, who runs the world? Who's in charge these days? Uh, it's an interesting question. I wish I could ask it to me yesterday so I could think about it. I think the world is currently in, a, at this moment, literally in the last 10 days, we've seen a fundamental, profound change. The world we thought we lived in, the world of post-war Europe is changed forever because what, what Putin has done is take us back to the 19th century in which we, you know, the land grabs or territorial disputes, we thought that was done largely, almost completely. I'm, I'm, a project that I'm working on right now is to look at the impact of the Helsinki Accords, which were 1975, in which borders in Europe were secured. And we always thought that that was going to be the future. Turns out it's not. 
So I guess the answer to your question is who runs the world is, a, is, is tremendously evolving. One thing I believe is that many of the things we see in our world, violence, misogyny, racism, all those things were in the Bible. And we're still dealing with them and probably always will. So we are run by the things that make human nature what it is. Complicated. 